0: Hey everyone, Eric here. We're really excited about a new AI show from Turpentine called Autopilot, hosted by Will Summerlin. This podcast explores the adoption and rollout of AI in the industries that drive the economy and the dynamic tech founders bringing rapid scalable change to slow-moving industries from law to hardware to aviation. Will interviews founders backed by Benchmark, Greylock, YC, and more to learn how they're automating at the frontiers in entrenched industries. Click on the link in the description to subscribe to Autopilot. Welcome back to Terpentine VC, a podcast where we discuss the art and science of building successful venture firms. We're joined today by Hamantanea of General Catalyst. How Hamant governs General Catalyst is very similar to A16Z. He's the CEO of the firm, and he runs it like a true business, defining its mission and values, approaching a product from a problem-solving perspective, and more—all the things that apply to enduring businesses. Hamant applies it to General Catalyst. In this episode, we dive into why that's an essential part of their firm's governance. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave us a review. Now on to the interview. Haman, welcome to Turpentine, BC. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Eric. Excited to do this. When you took over as as CEO at at General Catalyst, was there a CEO prior? Or or talk about how that development happened. Look, it was was really interesting. Our
1: um, desire to build... An enduring firm and an enduring business really started, uh, I would say, middle part of the last decade. I remember this amazing meeting I had with you know David, Joel, Bill Fitzgerald, who was our CEO and, and really one of the uh, you know co-founders from the beginning. Uh, and we were discussing uh, the future of we what we're going to General Catalyst. And I and I you know I, I don't take this as hubris. I said, look, you. Uh, don't realize this, and certainly the world doesn't either. But I think I uh, will end up doing reasonably well. Uh, I, by then, invested in Stripe and Snap, and we started Livongo and you know Gusto. And, and I'm like, wow, these are amazing companies. I just I was just very hopeful that that was going to work. And I said, I would like to build a platform. And this is a firm you guys started. I want to be respectful to what you want to do here. And to their credit, they were like, we absolutely want to build an enduring forum and, and leave a great legacy. And what do we need to do? And and I think that's really when that journey started. And then, as you know, we brought in uh, Ken Chenault as uh, our chairman and managing director about five years ago now. And that was uh, you know a lot of people wondered why would you bring somebody with a Fortune 500 CEO into the venture business. You know, our intentionality very much was about how do we learn to be a good business? And and I give you know Ken a lot of credit. First of all, mentoring me and and learning how to take charge because when you, if you're going to scale, you need to have to get away from the traditional mindset that this is an artisanal business and it's a small partnership and we're sitting around the table and making these you know decisions like Oracle's uh, to, Hey, we're going to build a business. And none of us knew how to build a business. That's the irony of our business, which is, you know, we're not the best operators. And so it was a very intentional choice to bring Ken in to mentor uh, me so it was actually even though we announced it last year it was a five year journey and I remember Ken sat us down at the very first dinner after he joined and he said to David and Joel and me he said I know I'm here I'm here to drive this succession and so this can be an enduring firm and that's just it's just been amazing uh, to watch him you know develop me and develop others in the firm and and help us you know navigate this succession as successfully as we have so far.
0: It's fascinating because investors, we as venture capitalists would never invest invest in a company that didn't have a CEO or that had, you know, five CEOs sitting around the table and saying, hey, we got to vote on everything, et cetera. And yet so many venture firms operate that way. Talk a little bit about that. So in, in 2012, I remember sitting down with one of our LPs at that
1: time, and uh, they saw that we're starting to think about perhaps uh, scaling our business. and. Uh, you know, I said to this particular LP that, hey, we are a business. And the LP said, you're not a business. It's a convenient arrangement for us to pay fees for you to manage our money. That really hurt, by the way. I was just like, "That—that that is literally how our industry gets thought of. And, and there was also this conventional wisdom that the more time you spend internally uh, as a venture capital firm, the less time you spend with your founders and the less successful you will be. So the biggest irony of our business is we give great advice to other founders on how to scale their businesses, but we actually never run ours in a good way. I was like, we have to cheat that. I mean, I said this. I was like, you know, folks like John and Patrick at Stripe or Evan and Bobby at Snap. And I was watching, you know, Josh and uh, Eddie Tomer and Gus. And I'm like, wow, they are these amazing operators. We need to run our business with the same rigor. We need to learn from them and actually bring that uh, into our own organization. And that's the uh, journey we've been on. Uh, you know, since then to say, we, we need to operate with the same rigor as opposed to it's just a few of us, you know, making handful of investment decisions a year, a year and nothing, nothing, the rest
0: of it doesn't matter. Say more about the business that you're building. Um, you you already have a few different venture products, but we'll get into them, but say more, yeah. what's the vision for general Catalyst? Where is it five years from now, 10 years from now?
1: So one of the first things it, uh, that can had us do, and this, I think this is 2018 was to do mission and values work for the firm. I mean, 18 years into our existence, we go and do something that startups <laughs> in the beginning, right? But yes. it's never too late, I suppose. But it was, yep. it was sort of a journey to find out who we are and what drives us. We did the mission and values work. And you know our mission, uh, I, I'd love to, to you know, say, say this, is, is to invest in positive, powerful change that endures the way we think about our business today is, well, we we want to uh, make positive change. The way you make positive change is by helping build companies that can endure for a long time. And the companies that can endure for a long time are the ones that are in the interest of society. And so you have to think about uh, simultaneously focusing on enhancing purpose and profit. And so when you take a step back on that, you know, and, and I always like to caveat that I'm a capitalist. I'm not an impact investor. The point is, if you want to build the most compounding businesses and therefore create the most uh, value value for your investors, you must think with this long term mindset. And so today, I think of GC as a platform for inclusive capitalism. We want to build these kinds of enduring companies that bring everybody on board uh, and and create opportunity for everybody. To be inclusive. You know, the there's this handful of areas where we think. Uh, that is really interesting for us to do today. Uh, those areas since we have, I, I wrote this annual letter last year where I articulated that are obviously the geopolitical shift around global resilience, where each nation is thinking about, you know, their climate and defense and food and ag, and how's all that going to work in a way that, uh, they can protect and take care of their people. There's the technological shift around AI, which is profound and touches everything. And then you know we're very keen on the industry transformations around health assurance, as we call it, uh, and, and and financial inclusion, which which really gets done at the intersection of uh, fintech technologies and decentralized crypto technologies. And how does that really manifest a better uh, inclusive economy? So those those are the areas, and everything we do is focus on how do we really help the very best founders create those mission driven companies in these areas, uh, and all of our products are focused on empowering the founders to build those enduring companies. So the innovation that you see, I always tell our LPs this, you should always ask us, how is this reinforcing our core, which is the early stage, the venture firm that we were and continue to be thinking of ourselves at the core. And how does it really help these founders endure for a long time? Those should be our products.
0: We had Mamoon and Ilya on, and they talked about how Kleiner was doing so much. And then they consolidated, and they're all one fund, you know, one team, one dream, and they're just a generalist firm that you know wins Series A deals. Um, we also had Ben Horowitz on, and of course, A16Z built this massive platform and almost fund of funds where they have different practices and uh, you know have massive AUM. And, and I'm curious; it, it feels like you're more in the A16Z game, where you think of venture as a as a product, as as a business. You have these different product lines. You yourselves have have, have massive AUM. Um, I'm, I'm I'm curious if you think the future is more that way um, or, and, and how you think about that sort of comparison to begin with. First of all, when you talk about Mahmood or you talk about Benmore, these are iconic
1: investors. And, and what that tells you is there's actually many ways to, to succeed uh, a, in this business. And, and I always remember my conversation with Annie Golden, who uh, runs the president, and has been a lead investor for us forever. Um, where I used to always ask me, well, how do we compete? How do we become a top Ah uh, firm in the ecosystem, this' literally lead and he would always say play your own game. you know, and there are many ways to succeed and just focus on what your game is. I think both of those firms are in a great trajectory. I think they're both very different from us. We think about scaling perhaps a little bit differently because uh, i'm I'm not sure you can scale venture capital funds to be very large and and maintain performance. Uh, this is what happens. You know, bubbles happen people get exuberant, funds get bigger, bubbles collapse, funds get smaller. We're in the middle of that right now. And I think our industry kind of just keeps oscillating in this three-dimensional innovation uh, of state sector and geography uh, and funds around it. That's We just keep trying to optimize that. And uh, and I think we have to think very differently when you go back to the areas that i mentioned. If you're going to work on climate change, if you're going to work on, Transformation of the US healthcare system, which we're very deep into, about a dozen years into. If you work on financial inclusion, those are just not problems you can work on with a you know eight, ten year horizon. So if that's our agenda, then we have to start looking different from sort of a traditional venture capital firm. And that's what's happening to us. And you know, Ken always says great strategies are built in hindsight. I think ours is too. It's just a set of instincts and consider decisions as we're building this, but I'm very excited to see what we do become in a few years, but it will be aligned with our values and our mission
0: yeah. and, and focus on the transformations I'm talking about. And, and what does that mean more concretely in terms of how you guys are structured or organized or, or, um, sort of plan against that vision? Yeah. I think a lot about culture. Okay. And, and
1: the kind of culture required to build the type of firm we're trying to build is one where you preserve the magic of a partnership when it comes to investment decisions, where a few of you debate and discuss and make decisions on a particular investment and then get behind it as a firm to help build uh, that company. Uh, But at the same time, you need to run with the rigor of one of those iconic portfolio companies I mentioned earlier, so you can actually endure. So how do you really build a culture that allows for both? And so one of the reasons my title is CEO and managing director is, when it comes to an investment decision, I'm just another investor around the table. There's areas where I have done well, and so the firm will listen to me more. And there's areas where I don't know much, and the firm should not listen to me. When it comes to building a platform, I run the business. And, and, and they're very much a CEO, and we're run it with our OKRs and our you know, executive committee and all the things.
0: Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Over 100 startups launched today. Do you know who they are? If you're not seeing interesting startups, none of your downstream processes matter. How you source deals at the earliest stages could be your most consequential investment. Harmonic is the most complete startup database, finding new companies as soon as they incorporate and tracking them through IPO. You can create a search tailored to your investment thesis. In one search, filter over company data, including venture stage, industry, and geography, founders and operators' backgrounds, and traction metrics like headcount changes, social media audience, and web traffic growth. Importantly, Harmonic instantly surfaces warm connections to help you connect with founders. The results are delivered on autopilot, wherever you most need them, over Slack, email, or via API, directly into your CRM, integrating seamlessly into your software stack. Learn why Craft, Bedrock, NEA, and hundreds more. Trust Harmonic's data by visiting harmonic.ai or use the link in the description. Make sure you mention our podcast, Turpentine VC, during your demo. How does macro determine um, your, your strategy? We saw Founders Fund pull back significantly on, on their fund size. I'm curious how, how macro determines uh, strategy more broadly. I think if you take the pressure off of we want to make these funds bigger and bigger
1: and bigger and say you know, we want to be on three-year cycles and there's a certain amount of capital bottom-up that our organization can and should invest while maintaining high performance or sort of sticking to that. Uh, and sort of saying, hey, venture capital work is your innovation factory for solving those long-term problems. The other question is, what else do you need uh, to be able to then compound these businesses and and drive those transformations uh, at scale, which you know, our industry hasn't traditionally thought about, right? We don't think in the context of we're building ecosystems and, and creating broader change. We think about how do we take a company to a certain amount uh, of scale, take it public and exit and turn it over to other investors. My view is that as the industry institutionalizes and and as the type of work we do ends up being uh, much more sort of societal and in terms of efficacy of core pillars of society versus just efficiency with software, we need to think differently. We need to think on a longer horizon. We need to um, think about our governance in a different way, which is why we did a lot of work on responsible innovation. My last book was focused on trying to frame the mindset and mechanisms for that. And, uh, uh, you know, we need to have a capital base and a set of tools that can help these founders and companies through those inflection points for that longer change. So that's, that's, that's what drives the way we think about our firm, way we think about the people we have in the firm, this is a very eclectic place. We've got two fortune 500 CEOs. Uh, you know, we've got a filmmaker who's won a couple Oscars. We've got one of the most elite bankers uh in tech and some trade investors, it's just eclectic. And I think it unlocks that diversity of thought so that Followers can work with us
0: uh you know on that long horizon. When you look out at the at the future of of VC and how the asset class is evolving, do you think that more um firms will be doing kind of the, some of some of the uh financial innovation that, that you guys are doing or or some of the product innovation or how do you think about the future of how the asset class is evolving?
1: I said this, I want to say like six or seven years ago now, that uh, as the companies are starting to stay private longer, and some should and most shouldn't, but as, as some were, it was very clear that some of us who were focused on early stage were growing up to figure out how to help those companies endure and maximize their opportunity in them. And then you were also seeing some of the public market investors coming in commoditizing uh, capital uh, and essentially flooding it into the system to say let's just buy the options and the ones that work will in the end work out because of parallel. Right. And and my belief was you'll see a few of us grow up to be sort interesting, unique platforms. And you know you'll see a few of them uh you know come down and actually learn how to do the early state part of the business and become full stack platforms. It's worked well for some, not for others. I think it's about The difference is going to be which ones have taken the time to invest in culture and create a sense of purpose and mission for why you're doing this and which ones have just been mercenary. And and that's ultimately what determines missionary companies become category-defining companies. And I think there are, you know, uh, a handful of firms that are doing it that way. And I think they'll become enduring large platforms and others will struggle. But we'll always have the long tail of early-stage firms as well. The opportunity is so large, like so many different sectors are firing on all cylinders. We're not even done with the previous cycle, and I got the AI inflection uh, happening to everything that the, the solopreneurs, you know, folks like Elad, I think they are franchises. I think there's a bunch of early stage programs that are gonna have a great, uh, continue to have a great future. And then you'll see some platforms, right? That, that wanna have many, many different ways to engage with the founders, uh, you know, that are thinking over the long-term.
0: I want to return to something we discussed earlier about your responsible innovation thesis, just the desire to do good. I've heard one critique of the clean tech era, the critique being that the investors were too inspired by the idea of doing good that they weren't rigorous enough in their kind of underwriting of these opportunities. They wanted it so bad to be true. Um, I'm curious if if you agree with that uh, with that assessment and then also how how you are People in general should think about balancing the desire to see a certain, um, you know, reality come to pass with also just being realistic about, uh, you know, what's what's the real opportunity. First of all, having been one of the people that failed a ton in clean tech, I can give you many
1: critiques of the clean tech period if you'd like. Please, to them. Yeah, Please. let's hear it. <laughs> um, but no, I, I won't go there now. But I think, I think the core issue when we were doing uh, 1.0 was the... The playbook for how to build a company wasn't sound financially. The policy designs weren't sound to create, you know, reliable markets, which made the capital unreliable. And these companies need long duration to succeed. I think one of the big things about a innovation is to not think of this as you're somehow trying to optimize diametrically opposed uh, metrics around purpose and profit. I think you have to believe that by being purposeful, you will actually enhance your profit. And so uh, I think the clean type 1.0 just, those markets just weren't set up and we didn't build the companies the right way uh, is a reason that uh, they failed and the economics were, weren't just thought through. I don't think it's because they were just do good or saying, oh, we'll take less margin. We just never made a viable business uh, uh, in, in most of those cases. And it was only forces in nature like Elon back got through because they just, you know, just brute forced it. But very few companies got to that scale. So... I wouldn't overthink that uh, their mislearnings are responsible innovation from there. I, I think um, uh, in this next phase, especially in the areas that I just mentioned, how can you build a company that's going to be around for thirty years and be an amazing investment if you don't embrace responsible innovation? How is that possible? And I think that's my personal hope is that our firm just proves that 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 mindset is a way to create elite returns and. You know, we're very much on that journey.
0: That's well put. From a from a firm strategy perspective, h- how do you think you're different than, than A16Z? Because I, I see a lot of overlap in, in, in the ambition, or h- how do you guys think you do things differently? I mean,
1: I love listening to almost everybody there, but they're just, I find them really provocative in the way to think about the world. In terms of how are we different, I probably respond to innovation is something we lean into a lot, and I'm not sure that's like an explicit strategy. I would say, we're not really doing, um, you know, other than healthcare, not really doing sector uh, specific funds. So I think our product construction is probably different. Uh, you know, we have this customer value fund and our funds are going to be smaller. I don't think we're going to be uh, scaling to the size that I've seen them scale. I just, I just, at least for us, I don't know how to generate any returns on uh, very large fund sizes. So we're going to be on a more measured sort of venture capital complex. I think we have a different approach in healthcare. We're more, more focused
0: more on health insurance. They're more focused more focused more on life sciences and AI. Let's talk about healthcare because you, you guys have done phenomenally there, and and you in particular. What is your unfair advantage in in healthcare, and and why have why have you guys done so well? I think we first of all we got lucky that when we built Livongo, you know there were a set of
1: instincts around what became the core pillars of health insurance. We ended up partnering with Glenn and Lee, you know, just phenomenal entrepreneurs in the space. And we were able to create a culture that was truly tech and healthcare at the beginning, which was our thesis when we founded the business together. Um, uh, we bought a little company and, and uh, uh, you know, we launched in like 2014, I think. So first thing is that we were fortunate enough to be part of, a right? That showed us how to build a good company in the space that had, you know, good economics, good margins. Uh, and became, and they, there was, then you had like 100 companies that showed up that were Livongo for X. That's when you know you built a category defining company that it unlocks a lot of uh, opportunity around certain mechanisms. In 2019, because we had about 15 or so businesses, i have already had launched Camille uh, as one of our hatches and a few others. I had given a presentation to a partnership in that fall, and I was writing my book on healthcare that next decade is going to be about healthcare and we should lean in. And we should make it be a twenty percent bet for us, and I'd like us to uh, become very intentional about it. And this this was pre-COVID, right? And and talk about uh, getting perish the thought, but talk about getting lucky in terms of having a prepared mind. And then COVID happened to you, uh, you know, where that's like the iPhone moment of the space. You know, we just said we, we must lean in, we must turn this crisis into an opportunity because we had a ceases, we had a track record. Health systems were asking us for help. And our philosophy was all around radical collaboration with them so it just became a what better time to lean in and make a difference set of lucky circumstances uh that over time manifest themselves into an unfair advantage perhaps but I'll tell you we have a lot of work to do we have a lot of uh, companies and great ambition around achieving the health insurance vision but I mean I look at the amount of work needs to be done like it's easily 15 plus years from here so you know we'll see how we actually, turn that unfair advantage into, you know, real uh, valued returns. But I'm very optimistic. I'm very excited about it.
0: Yeah. And, and how do you think your strategy is differentiated from all the other healthcare funds, funds out there in terms of the, the way that you're thinking about it? I would say, so one of the things we have
1: really heavily invested in is developing partnerships with a lot of health systems. So our, our, our belief is that if you truly want to make this industry proactive, reduce the healthcare GDP and solve for health equity, which are sort of the three pillars of uh, health insurance, you have to help our provider groups, health systems, become better businesses. They need to become vibrant. They need to have 20% EBITDA so they can invest in their communities and and uh, you know have a flywheel of, of profit to accomplish their purpose. Going back to my point about alignment of purpose and profit, and, you know, so we're, we're, we're doing everything with the body. So how do we drive that theory of change? Uh, and so I think having that sense of mission and then, you know, so many founders have come and wanted to work with us because they agree with that and they want to be part of enabling that, then, then over time, that just becomes an ecosystem. And I've said before, the Amazon of healthcare is not a trillion dollar company, it's a trillion our ecosystem. My hope is that the founders we're working with collectively can
0: come together and help implement that theory of change. Totally. Let's talk about your incubation strategy more broadly. And you you guys call it creation. When you talk about how you've developed the strategy, how you you think about it and how you think about it maybe differently than than, uh, others in the industry.
1: So creation for 20 years has been highly serendipitous. Uh, And I think it happens because you just had a bunch of investors that were builders in their previous mindset. I was an entrepreneur. Joel and David were entrepreneurs. Larry was running tech companies. And so, you know, uh, I would say the three most interesting Uh, historical uh, incubations for us were Kayak, which we uh, started in 2004, Demandware, which became the Salesforce Commerce Cloud and Navango. These are like three different categories, three different category-defining companies, Um, but it was all serendipitous. And I think what we're doing now is um, thinking about, well, what are the the types of projects that kind of naturally wouldn't self-combust in our ecosystem where we can maybe catalyze Interdisciplinary teams—they're capital intense. Uh, they need access to, you know, certain parts of the networks to make uh, those markets develop a certain way. Those end up being good projects because we want to be net accretive to the ecosystem in the way we do our uh, our work. And we have a, a new partner we just joined, Mark Bargova, who's helping us, you know, uh, bring more structure to how we align with potential co-founders for those efforts and how do we get better at research and rigor around the ideas we choose to work on. So that, you know, maybe instead of doing, you know, one or two of these a year, maybe we aspire to maybe do, you know, six, seven, eight of these a year. We don't want to turn it into a factory because every category defining company has its own culture. So starting with a factory would just not lead to the outcome you're hoping for, which is, you know, building category defining companies. So we really want it to be that we're this invisible co-founder to folks uh, in, in solving big problems with our creation efforts.
0: I want to also go to one of your other strategies you mentioned, the customer uh, value strategy. Why don't you unpack what what exactly you're doing there, what inspired it? For
1: subscription-oriented businesses, when you think about the the CAC LTV equation, it starts to become a little bit like a digital project finance opportunity. And the observation was so much of the equity gets invested in you know, funding sales and marketing, but you could, you could literally think about that as financing, uh, you know, your CAC with a certain IRR threshold effectively. And so, you know, uh, we came up with a way to finance that in a way that isn't equity-oriented. It's not diluted to founders. So that's a that's a better product to figure out your uh, uh, growth once you have a convicted product market fit in the business than continue to poor equity and keep diluting yourself. So we thought it would be an interesting... Way to support our founders, and frankly, our own investment in, in 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 their companies to go much longer and compound much further by giving them a, uh, a facility like that. We and that, that that strategy did not to a great start. We just did our first public company uh, investment out of that in Lemonade as well, and so I'm excited about that being just a really founder friendly
0: product uh, that we were able to create
1: for high growth companies.
0: What are firm products that, that don't exist yet that you uh, that you want to launch in, in the future? I uh, don't think that way.
1: I will reframe it into what are the problems we want to work on that we maybe aren't well suited to, and then the products will come to us. Yes. And so I literally couldn't tell you that there's a next uh, fund we want to create. But how are we going to work on climate change, right? The energy transition, the, 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 that is such a complex uh, problem when you think about how you you know, build those companies and finance them. And it's not just about solving the technology problem. It's actually about delivering those solutions that scale to really matter, right? That should be our end goal. So like, how are we really going to do that? And you certainly can't do that in a in a, uh, a sort of 10-year horizon. So what is that going to look like? So I think we think about examples of things like that. Well, um, uh, rather than, okay, what's in the next fund we can go create? So... You know, if you think about the AI transformations that the industry needs, which I think, I think AI is going to be much more about transfor- transformation of existing industries than, than just innovation. And because, you know, every, every business in every uh, part of the economy is thinking about how to use it all at the same time. It's an amazing transformation opportunity. And so like, how do we really serve those companies? What does that really look like? So, you know, being flexible in how we think about capital and governance to solve these problems versus we're like a hammer looking for a nail with a 10 year fund with, you know, fees and carry is is probably the departure we've had from the existing uh, way of thinking about the industry. And, you know, uh, I'm sure we will innovate in the future. I can't tell you what that is, but I'm sure there'll be, you know, more innovations that come our way in the next few years. Talk about your global resilience practice. If you think about what happened in the last few years, you think about Ukraine and the energy dynamics it created in Europe, you look at COVID and the vaccine, Uh, dynamics, you know, you think about uh, SWIFT and kicking Russia out, all of a sudden you know, uh, a lot of the things that countries took for granted in the globalization era, they're not going to just assume those things are there for them. So I think sovereign nations are going to want to take care of their own people for the core basic needs in a much more programmatic way, which by the way is going to cause structural inflation in the system as well. And so what that does is it makes you think about opportunities differently. In the traditional venture mindset, it's like that, that stuff is so macro, it doesn't really matter. We're just building little companies down here. But I think when you think about, you know, uh, industries like defense, where we investors in Androil and Vadovar, you think about, uh, you know, again, the pandemic vaccine response, things like that, you're going to have to think about these things. Or even, even if you look at AI, look at what's happening. European nations are all saying we need our own AI because we don't want to rely on the United States. And so can you build these technologies in ways that you do give each of the nations resilience in the core areas that they care about? And how does that change how you think about business building? So that's a lot of what's driving our global resilience uh, thesis that Paul Kwan is really the architect of and has done a wonderful job, you know, helping us sort of build
0: uh, a portfolio around. Hey. We'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. I want to go back to 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 healthcare because some people lament. They say, "Hey, there's been so few transformational outcomes the past couple decades in healthcare, and we expected to have all of these decacorns in in digital health." You're, you're perhaps one of the 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 only ones uh, or the very few. Why has that been the case, and and why is the next decade going to be different? So
1: that has been the case because. The way the system works, where who pays and who benefits and who decides are all different people, it's like a fundamentally misaligned system. So you you innovate, but those innovations then just get you know, acquired to be incremental inside of the bigger platform. So that's, that's the nature of what has happened in this industry. And uh, you know, one of the things I was excited about when we combined Livango and Teladoc was that maybe we could actually build a provider-centric platform that was digital and uh, was going to be scaled enough uh, to create more balance in the, in the power dynamics in, in that industry, didn't happen. Look, we're trying to see that we can help change it, first of all. Uh, and the only way it's going to happen is if we actually build this ecosystem that's buoyant together uh, in creating some of the structural changes around aligning the, the interest. So like, you know, can the, can the providers take risks? They're all trying to figure out how to do that, but that's a really difficult transition. Can you move to value-based care? No one company can solve this. Right, and so you know, can you actually have an ecosystem trying to do that in concert with each other? Uh, and if and if you could break through that transformation, then this is twenty percent of the GDP. You are going to see multiple decade corners, and I think that's the bet we're making that over the next you know ten years we can get. And I said this in my book that maybe there's ten to fifteen platforms that do get built uh, that are you know large and represent the next generation of the health insurance ecosystem.
0: We'll see. And, and say more about, uh, you know, for all the operators listening in um, who might want to build something healthcare, like, where do you see as the opportunity or white space or what's your request for startups?
1: Look, I think, I think because uh, COVID was such a jolto system, there's a lot of companies that have been started that are actually quite interesting. There's a lot of innovation that is underway. Uh, of course, there are, you know, uh, more ideas around value-based care. I think the, the use of AI uh, uh, into this industry in you know, a thoughtful way is very interesting. Like uh, you know, we just launched this business, Hippocratic AI, in partnership with the pl- folks at Eight Sixteen Z, and uh, the founders. And you know, their dream is that you solve the workforce workforce shortage issue here and just make uh, it abundant with AI, so you can actually serve people in a much deeper way. That'll make a difference, right? So, so I think there are a lot of uh, things around how AI gets embedded. Uh, To rethink some of this, I think the idea of what are the pieces required to move to value-based care is important, and I'm talking about the healthcare delivery side. I'm not talking about the life sciences side, which is obviously its own beast, and we have a you know increasing amount of body of work in that area as well. Um, And uh, you know, uh, but like my focus right now is there's a lot of companies, a lot of founders that have jumped in. We need to help them scale and break through this barrier. So, like, you know, how do we get? we, We probably have over a hundred companies in this space in our portfolio. Like, can we help them, as many of them as possible to get to that scale so we can break through, uh, you know, and I'm I'm very very keen on seeing the maturation of this, you know, the the innovation ecosystem that just got created on this area with like very, very smart
0: founders, very mission driven founders over the last three years. As a thought experiment, you know, it turns out that you you rose up and and became CEO of General Catalyst. But let, let's say that 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 wasn't an opportunity, and you had to go out on your own in 2023 and and start a new uh, aspirational franchise. Like many listeners of this podcast are trying to to do, where do you think is the opportunity for emerging managers in in 2023 who who have big big dreams, big ambitions? H- how would you approach it differently, or what advice might you give them? First of all. I think I've said this a handful of times
1: this year that thank God we moved here in 2011 and not 2023. Uh, you think about like, what the opportunity was and you know, what happened with the App Store movement. and stuff. We just got really lucky. Timing has a lot to do with, you know, you can, you can work really hard, but timing has to uh, be on your side. And we got really lucky when we moved here uh, and started building our West Coast presence. Um, I would say, you know, if you uh, do it today, you have to do it with a point of view. But you have to rise above the noise, you know. There's the capital is so abundant. This industry is overcapitalized, no matter how you look at it. And so you have to work with the what's your value proposition to the founders. And so, you know, like what Sarah's done with AI, or that she's doing, and you know, it's just just having like a deep point of view with which you want to um, uh, engage with founders early on uh, is what it's going to take if you want to build a business today. I don't. I think this we're generalists. It's kind of the way I grew up, uh, and you know, we do a little bit of everything. It's just very plain vanilla, and it doesn't work. I think everybody's got great network. Everybody's got capital. You know, it's it's like this twenty-year journey in venture capital to uh, say my money's greener than yours. I think that game's over, and so you better have real uh, value add uh, if you want to rise above the noise. Built an enduring uh, firm, sort of starting today.
0: Gearing towards closing here, I want to end with with a couple of questions. One is, how do you think about talent? Right there, just like any great big firm, there are a number of people who've risen up, a number of people uh, and who are still here today, a number of people who've left to start their own practices. Um, it, you know, and, and you had some great uh, alumni at, at, at GC, and and then also you've brought in some great people. You mentioned Mark Bragava. Um, there, there's there's a, no, a number of them. What is your approach at GC to 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 talent, uh, to cultivation, re- retention? I think uh, first of all,
1: if GC is going to be an enduring promise, because we figure out a way to develop next generation franchise players at the firm, uh, that it just has to be. And in our philosophy, going back to the diversity of thought, is that uh, we don't have a GC way of investing that we want to teach everybody. We just want to weaponize you to create the change that you want to do in the world. So if if you have a thesis like that, come talk to us, so that you know we can turn you into a platform. So I think that's one thing is, can we activate more Paul Quans and Mark Bargavas, as we discussed, or Chris Bishop's, to be like, gee, I want to go work on the following transformation, uh, or you know, Elena was doing the life sciences, and give me the platform to do that and, and get behind us, right? You know, the philosophy over the last few years, we brought in some very senior people was to invoke that diversity of thought, but with people that share our values. So everyone that we brought on, we had multi-year relationships with, and, and that alignment around mission and values was just, if you ask any of them, that's why they came here. They came here because of responsible innovation. They came here because uh, they know we're trying to build a long-term business. They came here because we're thinking about these things at scale. So flooding, so um, you know, but that was a short-term hack. If we were to seize the moment and, and get to some reasonable amount of scale to drive these industry changes uh, that we want to do with innovation, we had to bring that talent in. When I think about the next phase so much of it is about you know cultivating the next generation talent so we're constantly looking for for that and if we see people that are mission aligned we'll create roles for them uh if we think they can come and do really interesting work here
0: yeah totally that, that that's a in, an inspiring note and, and you had you have some amazing people at, at, at gc how do you think gc kind of situates in in, in the ecosystem right we, we have um we interview people from Sequoia, from a benchmark, from um, Kleiner, for, from Andreessen—the the founders or, or the leaders of, of these firms. We have a separate podcast, LP podcast, um, and so we talk to a lot of LPs as well. And and, and then, um, how, how do you think about where General Catalyst fits in into the into the venture ecosystem in terms of like how should we think about it relative to these other firms in terms of where it really um, separates itself and, and where it really spikes? Look, I always feel like we have a lot to learn from all those firms.
1: Some of them as individuals like Mark and others that are just, you know, historians of technology and help shape it. And some of the firms that have been around for a long, long, long. So I, I view us as an upstart still, even though we've been around for 20 years. I genuinely do. Uh, I think we're, we're constantly trying to learn and innovate. So in that sense, you know, even uh, LPs look at us, they probably see a much more dynamic uh, place, probably just like, uh, you know, A16Z in some ways, as you said earlier. Um, but... You know, we're, we're probably more in the use technology to radically collaborate versus use technology to disrupt camp. That's probably one place where we philosophically tend to be a little different. But again, as I said, like there's so many ways to succeed and all those firms have just been legendary in what they've accomplished. And so even to be mentioned in that group, you know, it's a, it's a privilege and an honor. But we have a long way to go. I, I genuinely yeah. feel like we're just getting started. You know, I feel like we finally have a shot at
0: doing something interesting. Totally, that's an inspiring note to to wrap on. So I, I might wrap on that, but let me just pull this one thread. You you mentioned, and we alluded to in this conversation, and, and you wrote a whole book on it. Um, this sort of instead of hardcore disrupt, um, you know, more around in, in invent to collaborate. P- pull that thread a little bit. T- talk more about what what that what that look looks like concretely, or what's what's an example of that.
1: I mean, look, radical collaboration is how you're going to create great change. That's the bottom line. If, if the mindset is, how do I build a company that can get to 100 million bucks in revenue, go public, get a great multiple and I exit? Uh, let's say it's an education. Great. Be disruptive and you'll, you'll do that. If the mindset is you want to change the education system, we're well, not going to do that, but as, as a single company with that complex, uh, a role. Probably, unless you are, you know, somebody like Elon, who's literally moved the entire auto industry towards, uh, you know, a theory of change, I, I would say, you know, in most cases, you need to engage with the ecosystem, and you need to learn from them as to why things are the way they are, and was the spirit of the policies that were there, for example, as opposed to just pooing what exists today because we're so much smarter uh, than everybody. I think I think there were lots of really smart people whose legacies represent uh, the enduring uh, organizations and. You know, a legacy is a great way, word. When we say legacy we think of that as a tarnished word of like, oh, they're old and stodgy. But no, they 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 made a big difference in society. And so, can we can we figure out a way to innovate fast and work with them so that we can scale that innovation fast? Is the essence of why we're leaning into radical collaboration so much.
0: Hamant, that's a that's a great note to to end on. This has been a fascinating conversation. Um thanks so much for coming on. For people who want to learn more about uh, your mission and, and your work, um, where can you point them?
1: Come to our website. Jennifer would be happy. <laughs> I think we would have put a lot of thought into articulating our philosophy and and, and how we're approaching things and our values. So, you know,
0: come or, or email any of us. You know, we're all accessible and and uh, come talk to us. Great. Uh, thanks so much for coming on, Hamant. This has been a great episode. Wonderful. Thanks for having me. Turpentine VC is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Moment of Zen and Econ 102. If you liked the episode, please leave a review in the Apple Store or rate us on Spotify. Hey, everyone. Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now.